0: We have spent the fall in a series called Question and Answer, Life Asks, Jesus Answers. We've been following the story of the ancient Israelites, and for most of this fall, we've either been on the way to exile, or in exile, or just returning from exile, and some question has come out of that situation. For this final uh, Sunday in this series, we find the Israelites back in exile. And I think uh, it has worked out just right, this question and answer for this last uh, question for us. Maybe it is the final question we have. Let me read to you the text from Jeremiah. To the people in exile, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people, it is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of the flock out of all of the lands where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. You have heard the ancient story. Where were you 50 years ago this past Friday at 12.30 p.m.? It would be 45 more days before I would be born, but most of you who have crossed that half-century mark can tell me exactly where you were the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. It was the kind of tragic day that marks individual lives and sets the trajectory of a nation. Amid the flurry of feature stories in this week's anniversary of that tragic event, one report tied the death of JFK to the eventual direction of that whole turbulent decade of the 60s. The years of my early childhood were marked in our nation by the double-edged sword of freedom. There were manifestations of maturing liberation and needed correction for this country, but there were also distortions of unhealthy excess. The years produced equality for women and minorities, but that time also saw Americans gathered at a graveside listening to a eulogy for a once-revered institution called authority. One critical assessment of JFK's leadership called it a model of idealistic utopianism. And when a bullet from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository destroyed Camelot, the disillusionment that death often brings also cost us our ability to trust. How could one man so easily kill our president? Maybe it had to be a larger conspiracy. Amazing how strong that those theories still are. And if our government was helpless to stop that, what could it be trusted to provide? After generations of shameful injustice culminated in a tumultuous movement for civil rights, what little innocence remained in this country was lost in the dense jungles of Vietnam. The words question authority came to define us. Our current political malaise and the decline of the US church may be the sad legacy of this loss our whole country acting out with the dysfunctional temperament of an adult child of an alcoholic. Trust? Why trust? Trust how? Trust whom? Six centuries before Christ, who could have blamed the Israelites for being just as skeptical The legacy of the great King David had been squandered, and both resulting kingdoms of Israel had fallen to foreign invaders. The people of Judah were now in exile, being taunted with thoughts of their beloved home by heartless captors. And to add insult to this injury, their own prophets continued to speak words of hope. It is the ongoing challenge of religion. How do you offer hope without it sounding like just another hollow promise? Pie in the sky, by and by. The days are surely coming. They're coming. They're about to be here, says the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign You know, when he comes. He will reign and deal as king wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You know, the days are coming. Yeah, right. Heard that promise before, haven't we? How could anyone trust a word like that in a day like this? So what about you? Are you trusting and hopeful? Or are you world weary by past promises and too many hopes unfulfilled? Do hymns and sermons, all the glorious words of the church, inspire and uplift you? Or do you just roll your eyes and sigh one more time? And I wonder if trust and trustworthiness are not deeply connected. Is our ability to trust one another and God intrinsically tied to the integrity of our own living? In other words, do we have to be trustworthy to trust? Or do we have to trust to be trustworthy? So here is the question, maybe the appropriate final question. In a jaded, cynical world, who can trust you? And in whom do you place your trust?
1: with the music we've had today. But you're going to get it, anyway. (laughs) Colossians. Paul might have written it. It says in my Bible, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Maybe he wrote it. Maybe it was one of his devoted followers that wrote it on his behalf. Who knows? But there are no words more grand about this Jesus than we find in this letter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's my favorite. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of His cross. You've heard the ancient story. After twelve weeks, my manuscript says long. After twelve long weeks of this sermon, here we are at the end of this series that we have called Q and A where Russ has offered a question straight from the Old Testament's mouth, and I've tried to offer some kind of answer from a parable of Jesus. And here we are at the end, still looking for the answer. Next Sunday begins the Advent season, where we patiently, or not so patiently for some, await the coming of the Christ child again, and here we sit, still searching for answers. Could it be that the answer is as simple as Jesus? Well, I hope so, because that's all I've got to offer today. Jesus. The answer may be simple, one word, one name, but simple does not equal Easy. Never trust easy answers. Life is way too complicated for easy answers, and most folks would give anything for the easy way. Jesus' way is far from easy. But I'll say it again the answer to Russ's question today and every day Jesus. Plenty of people love to talk about him. Lots of folks like to claim him. Tons of people worship him. A lot of people have studied him. Many people have given their lives to, th- to him. Most folks like to praise him. And I think people do all of those things because all of those things are so much easier than following Him. We talk about Him, we study Him, we praise Him, we worship Him, and claim Him as our very own, like Jesus is something we can carry around in our back pocket just in case. But do you follow Him? And then there are my favorite people Some of them are in our church. And I mean this. Some of my favorite people fall into this category. They don't praise Him. They don't worship Him. And they don't claim Him at all. But they remind me so much of Him. From everything I know about him and from everything I know about them, I'd say they follow him more closely than most folks that I know. From my vantage point, he is their answer, and they don't even know they've asked the question. Jesus looms large in our culture. Just look at how retailers and Hallmark have taken hold of him in an effort to overstuff their wallets. I'm sure he would have none of that. Perhaps that Jesus could stand to be minimized a bit as we seek to discover his life, his teachings, his healings, his bent towards the poor, his compassion, his truth, his peace, his way. If he is our answer, what was the question again? Whom shall we trust? I'll tell you how it happened for one of my favorite writers. Anne Lamott was raised an atheist by parents who considered themselves too sophisticated to be religious and who equated Christianity with belief in extraterrestrials. And then, as an adult, in 1984, God used tiny St. Andrew Presbyterian Church in California to turn Anne Lamott's life around. She was 30 years old, living on a houseboat, trying to write in the daytime and drinking herself into oblivion at night. On Sunday mornings, when she was hungover or coming down off of a cocaine binge, she would wander over to the local flea market. One Sunday, she noticed gospel music coming from a church across the street. St. Andrew, Presbyterian. She said, I began stopping in at St. Andrew from time to time, standing in the doorway to listen to the songs. The sanctuary was drab and run down, but it had a congregation of 30 people or so radiating kindness and warmth. Oh, I want to be that church. Radiating kindness and warmth. The sermons were usually all about social injustice and Jesus, which would be enough to send me running back to the sanctuary of the flea market, she said. Drinking and pills helped dull the pain. One night, lying in the darkness of her drab houseboat, she said, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. She knew it was Jesus. She turned on a light to look and see if he was there. She didn't see anybody, but she knew it was Jesus. I felt him sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. For the next few days, she sensed Jesus following her everywhere like a little cat, she says. Finally, in the dark of one night, she writes, I took a deep breath, and I said out loud, the sentence begins with an expletive. If you've read her, I'll skip that one. I quit. All right. Come on in. And with that moment, her life was turned around. She did not become immediately sober. It would take about a year for that. But that's her story, and it is such a good one Her answer came to her like a cat that would not leave her alone. She resisted until she could resist no longer. That's her story, and it's a great one. And in the letter to the Colossians, we hear Paul's story or some devotee of Paul, and it's a good story, one of the strongest declarations of faith in this one who claims and holds power over us. Other people's stories are great, too. Frederick Beatner says that there really are two Jesuses. The one who was, and this is what he says about that Jesus. The Jesus who was, was a fathomless, elusive, unpredictable, haunting, and finally unknowable figure who moves through homely landscapes of the synoptics, and the twilight dreamscapes of John like a figure in an old newsreel and then Buechner says there is the Jesus who is, who is the one whom we search for even when we do not know that we are searching and hide from even when we do not know that we are hiding. You know the last words of the Bible, don't you? Come. Lord Jesus. That's the way the Bible ends. As the one who comes to us, we know him most truly. The one who is constantly coming to us. Do you trust anyone? Whom do you trust? Lamont has her story, Beatner has his, Paul has his, but it's not my story, and until his story is mine and I know how to tell it, it really doesn't matter much. So in this season of Thanksgiving, let me say, I am thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for parents who introduced Jesus to me at church by taking me there all the time, even when I did not want to go. I am thankful for a church that raised me on his stories and taught me what it meant for Jesus to live in my heart. I'm thankful to have met a man that was interested in far more than any surface level understanding of Jesus who has caused me to think and scratch my head and make me uncomfortable with some of the things that I learned early on. He makes you scratch your head too, I know. (laughs) I'm thankful for professors that challenged me to dig deeper about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. I'm thankful for friends in every church along the way that I have served who have modeled his life for me. I'm thankful in college, for colleagues all over the country who help me every single Saturday night to write whatever I bring to you about Jesus. And they help me understand what it means to be followers of his way. I'm thankful for this particular church who helps me to live out my calling to preach and teach and minister in His name and who has baptized my sons when they said that they too wanted to follow Him. I've been thinking a lot about Jesus this week. This morning on the way to church I found myself humming and then, well, I couldn't help myself. I just started singing it right out loud. Give me, Jesus. Give me, Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me,
0: Jesus.
1: May it be so. Amen.
0: Following our prayer,